Hey there, friends. It's episode 233 of Self Kind with me, Erica Webb. And today I want to dive into talking about what does it actually mean when we say that things kind of live in the body? <laughs> By things, I mean kind of our emotional selves, why we think of um, trauma and emotion being stored in the body. What are we actually talking about when we say that? Because we hear this a lot and I think it can feel like a bit of a confusing um, kind of idea until we dive into what it actually means. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Hi, and welcome to Self Kind with me, Erica Webb. This is a podcast about what it means to be, live and move through a lens of self-kindness. We'll look at the ways self-kindness can underpin our practices in movement, mindfulness and mindset to support us to be and do the things we so desire in the world. I'm thrilled you're here. Let's get into the show. Okay, so diving into what has the potential to be a very big topic. So we might have to do multiple parts on this one. Let me know if you've got questions because um, this is a bit of a, a potential rabbit hole, this topic, but I think it is a really interesting one. And it's one that I think we hear this idea of like, you know, I think we hear it often related to trauma, like trauma lives in the body, um, emotion lives in the body. And we hear about people having like emotional releases when they're doing things like yoga or having body work done. And, you know, the, the form you often hear about people engaging in forms of somatic therapy and that real mind-body connection. And that's the way that I work as well, right? I, I take a somatic approach to counseling, a somatic approach to um, mental fitness and well-being because our body does not exist kind of in isolation from our mind. We can't cut off our body and our mind from each other. It just doesn't work that way or our body and our brain if you prefer to think about it that way. But it can be a little bit of a kind of nebulous concept of like emotion and trauma living in the body. What does that even mean? Like, does it physically take up residence somewhere in your body? Is it like a little gremlin that's sitting there waiting to explode? Like what actually is it? So I thought we would talk about that today because, you know, I, I, I think knowledge is power and having a understanding of these things can give us more confidence perhaps in ourselves and in our bodies and, and more trust because we recognize, we start to see that, oh, my body actually is working for me, even when it feels deeply uncomfortable and kind of confusing and potentially very much outside of our control in that moment. So let's dive in. So we all probably can think of a time where we've consciously known something to be true, but we've had a very hard time convincing our body, convincing our physiology that that is true. So, you know, I think we see this too, like in kids. So if you've, you've ever sort of had to sit with a child who was really frightened of something that you knew was safe, right? It's okay. You're okay. You're safe. Um, those sorts of conversations. Sometimes mentally we can be like, yes, I see that objectively I'm okay right now, but my body is telling me that things are not all right. Yeah. The racing heart, the churning belly, the tension in our muscles, the fear, the anxiety that can come up. And sometimes just trying to think your way out of those feelings isn't enough. It doesn't work 
right? You can be as logical as you like, but if your body has decided that, you know, that is not true, no, actually we're not safe. It isn't enough to think your way out of that. It doesn't really work. And this is the starting point for thinking about like, what does it mean then when we talk about all of this stuff living in the body? Because yes, it can be influenced by the way we think. Absolutely. But it isn't the whole picture. Now, the way that I want to talk about this, I come at this from a a pain science perspective, I I suppose, more than anything. Um, But I think we can learn a lot about this idea in general from these concepts from pain science. So we have to consider that our, our brain's number one priority and job is safety right? From an evolutionary perspective, we just have to survive, right? We just have to figure out how to get through this moment, this day, and not get eaten by a tiger or have our food stolen by someone or whatever. So we have absolutely a bias towards um, filtering for and noticing things that are potentially threatening. Now, what can happen in these scenarios is that it also makes evolutionary sense that if something like bad happens to us that threatens our survival in some way, that there would be some way to remember that so that we don't get ourselves into the same situation again. Now, I've told this story before, but I think it's a really interesting way to to bring this to life. This idea that your body remembers, right? Your nervous system remembers. I have injured my knee so many times, always snow skiing. So I've been snow skiing for 20 something years and I've injured myself almost that many times. No, that's not really true, but I have hurt my knee multiple times skiing. And it only takes me putting my foot into my old ski boot. I got new ones and interestingly enough, it doesn't happen as much anymore, but putting my foot into my ski boot is enough to trigger something in my body that makes my knee hurt. Even before I've stood up, even before I've hit the snow, before anything has happened. And this is an example of what we mean when we say this stuff lives in the body, because my brain has enough evidence to say that when we put these boots on, we're probably not very safe, right? Because you hurt yourself often. (laughs) I'm actually a decent skier, but uh, anyway, it's happened so many times. So my brain says, you know what, what's the best way to stop you from going and making the same mistake? It's to give you pain, right? It's to say, no, quit before, you know, quit while you're ahead. And so that is a, a sense of um, in a sense, that information being stored in the body. However, what's really happening is a series of, you know, brain connections happening. So it's my brain saying, oh, hang on, something significant happened to you when you put this boot on in this location, <laughs> doing this activity. And I've got a memory for that. I've got a memory in my networks that says, this is not a good idea. And so let's trigger something that is going to make you to make you stop like pain. Now in pain science, this is called a neurotag. This is this idea that when something biologically significant happens to us, i.e. something that threatens our survival, something that threatens our well-being, 
that our, our brain kind of takes a snapshot. It's like, what can I see? What can I smell? What can I hear? Where am I? What is the situation? And it creates this like network, right, of um, information that says, should we find ourselves in this again? We probably need to put a stop to it. So in my case with the with the knee injury, it's pain. In other circumstances, it might be anxiety. It might be freezing, right? Not in the sense of being cold, but like freezing, cannot move, immobile, cannot walk through that door, cannot leave the situation. Um, it might be inexplicable fear. It might be um, a desire to like run, which you could say is anxiety. So our brain has this way of saying, hey, there's this, there's this circumstance that is like not going to lead us anywhere good, let's put the brakes on somehow by creating some kind of feeling in you that makes you stop. Now, objectively, there might be nothing about that situation that is actually problematic. Maybe you've been strengthening at the gym and working on your physiotherapy exercises and your, your knee is like fine, right? Maybe you are in a location where you had a, a really awful argument with someone and you know, you, you suddenly feel anxious, but that person's not there and that issue's been resolved and, and whatever. So objectively, we might be like, I am fine. I'm fine. <laughs> but our body says, no, no, you're not. No, you're not. And so thinking our way out of it often isn't enough. And that is why we need to have body-based or somatic-based tools to help us to prove to our system that we're like, no, I'm actually, like, we actually are okay. And that's how the brain and the body work together because logic doesn't always interrupt those patterns and those patterns tend to be outside of our conscious awareness as they go into play, right? So it's not like you have the time to think, oh, this is where I was standing when this happened. It just happens. It just happens automatically and you might be caught completely by surprise by that like literally take your breath away. <laughs> like, whoa, why do I suddenly feel so anxious? Why do I suddenly feel, um, you know, this way? So we have that part, right? This idea of like the nervous system sort of storing the memories of things that have happened and then setting into motion a physiological response to kind of keep us safe. That's part of it. That's a little bit of what we're talking about when we talk about this stuff being stored in the body. Another way or another part of this, which is quite distinct from what we're talking about here, it kind of relates more to just habit and efficiency. So that's another thing our brain loves, efficiency, because, you know, conserve energy, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> um, and so we tend to move our bodies in quite habitual ways. And often that will also be in response to emotional stuff, right? Emotional distress, emotional discomfort, um, or even joy, all of that. So from a somatic exercise perspective, we have ways of holding and moving our body that in somatic exercise we call reflexes. So we have three of them in somatic exercise. The first one is the green light reflex. The second is the red light reflex. And the third is the trauma reflex. And these all kind of relate to kind of like a, a body-mind hybrid way of being. The green light reflex is kind of like that on, like I'm busy, I'm ready, I'm facing the world, um, which tends to be kind of this more back of the body kind of um, 
contracted front of the body more open. Like I'm, I'm charging into the day. The red light reflex tends to be more of that fear, that shutdown, that anxiety, that closing in, that protection. So it's more that curved back, um, cro- you know, rolled in shoulders, that sort of vibe. And then the trauma reflex tends to be the twisting and the side bending that we do with our body in response to perhaps an injury, holding a kid on one hip for a decade, um, holding a bag over one shoulder, all of those things. And there's often an emotional part to each of those things. When we're anxious, part of the reason that we close in or when we're fearful, part of the reason we close in is because of those feelings. There's this element of like protecting our heart, protecting our front, protecting ourselves, making ourselves look smaller, taking ourselves out of the the line of vision of, of others. The trauma one, you know, the the need to curve towards an injury um, for protection. There's a lot of emotion tied up in that as well as the physical kind of twisting and turning and, and closing in. And so sometimes the way that we think of this stuff being stored in the body is through habit, habit and repetition. And so that is different to what we were talking about before with the neurotag but they're both really significant because habit is efficient and generally tends to be outside of our conscious awareness, just like those neurotags tend to be outside of our conscious awareness until they're not, right? Once we know about them, once we see them, once we sense, oh, I see what's happening here, then they kind of come into our awareness, but they tend to start subconsciously. And so, If we have had a decade, right, of grief, of anxiety, of depression, of fear, and we have got a curved in posture, um, not permanently, right, like, but we tend to spend a lot of time here, then that is a, a protective mode, right? We are using our body protectively in relation to how we feel emotionally. So if you start to take that protective mechanism away, you're probably going to feel something emotionally because our body and our mind are not working outside of each other's um, awareness, right? So the way that we hold our body impacts how we feel, the way that we feel impacts how we hold our body. And there's just like this, this, they're completely enmeshed, right? It's completely entangled. And so we hear sometimes like, you know, if you've got an important thing to do, power stance first. And I mean, there's actual science behind why that works. Um, But if we think about, you know, trying to ease off tension that we've held for a really long time, sometimes that feels vulnerable because not it's not just about our body. That tension in your shoulders in some way is your body saying, I will keep you safe. This is the way that we're going to armor up against the world. This is the way that we're going to armor up against the colleagues, the, you know, schoolmates, the parents, the whatever, who have threatened us somehow through the way that they relate to us. This is our armor. So you take away your armor and suddenly you're vulnerable. And that can be why sometimes it feels like I shift this tension and suddenly like tears, stuff coming up because We've taken away something that was protective in some way. 
However, we can't just think our way out of it either. So we have to do both together. And that's the beauty of using our body because we can convince our mind thinking, we can think our way into a lot of different things, but if our body is not convinced, it'll be like a tug of war. Why do I still feel anxious even though I know that there's nothing wrong? Mm, Because you haven't convinced your body yet. And we convince our body by giving it evidence. We convince our body by creating more safety for ourselves, whether that be through um, time and repetition, whether that be through having a supportive person there with us, whether it be through getting down the mountain without, you know, (laughs) stuffing up your knee, whatever it might be, we create this evidence. But our body and our brain might be getting evidence from different places and our body kind of needs the proof. We need the proof because it has created a network that says this happens, go to work, go to work to protect this human because that is important. That is the most important thing. And that's why I think sometimes we get this feeling that like, oh, my body is working against me. Why is it being like this? But when we can look at it from this perspective, it's like, oh, thank you. Gosh, you've actually been working to protect me this whole time. I'm not loving the way that you're doing it. Like, you know, we can be be grateful for the fact that our body's doing that for us and still be like, hmm, that's not working for me anymore because I don't want to feel this tense or I don't want to have this anxiety every time I step into this room. We can, both can be true at the same time, but that's when we can say, okay, well, I'm going to work with my body to change this. I'm not working against it. I'm not trying to beat it into submission or kind of like find a way to trick it into something. I'm going to work with it because it's been my ally this whole time. So how can I then work with it in a way that honors that allyship and says, okay, let's find a new way, a way that works better now? Because those ways have worked. That's why they have stuck around. So coming back to that place of honoring, and I, I, I really do think that knowledge is power in that regard. When we can see what our body is doing, when we can see what our mind is doing, we might not have the intricacies of it, right? We might not be like, oh yeah, I see exactly what's happening here. I can like figure it all out. But when we have this broad idea of like, okay, my body actually does work for me. Sometimes it doesn't like come together the way that I would like it to because I'm sore and I'm tight and I'm anxious and I'm this and I'm that. But as soon as we can lean in closer and say, oh, you're being my friend, it changes everything, everything. All right. I think that's it. I think that's it for this conversation for now. Let me know if it brings up questions. Let me know if anything's not clear because um, it's a big topic. It's a really big topic. And I'm sure that from other perspectives, there's other ways of looking at this as well. But that's kind of my way, I guess, um, from from the fields of knowledge that I'm most versed in. Um, and I hope it's helpful. I hope it helps you to look at your body in a different way and to look at those sort of automatic reactions in a different way. We can be compassionate and grateful towards the way that our body has been and still very determined for to find a new way. They can both be true at the same time. All right. That's it. If you want to ask questions, come and find me over on Instagram. I'm at Erica Webb underscore self-kind. You can also email me Erica at ericaweb.com.au. And while you're on the website, 
which I didn't say, but if you go to the website or if you just go to the show notes, make sure you sign up for my newsletter as well, because that's where I send out information about um, podcast episodes and other things that you might be really interested in. Um, And just like, you know, weekly tidbits that are hopefully really helpful and supportive. All right. Keep being kind to yourself, friends. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Self Kind. If you loved it, why not share it? And while you're there, take the time to subscribe, rate and review the show. I'd love you to come hang out with me more too. You'll find me over on Instagram at ericaweb underscore selfkind. And you can sign up for my e-newsletter by heading to my website, ericaweb.com.au. While you're there, you can also read up more about the Self Kind Hub and other ways of working with me. Until next time, keep being kind to yourself. Bye.